2: Hi there, Matthew Parsons. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thanks. What can I do for you? What is Ghost Echoes? Ghost Echoes is a music history podcast with secret rules. Rule number one is... And then rule number two states that... And rule number three is that I'm not allowed to tell the listeners what the first two rules are. If you want to figure it out, you're going to have to subscribe to Ghost Echoes wherever you get podcasts.
1: Consequence Podcast Network.
2: Yeah, so I mean, in, uh, if we're talking about sports, I played sports growing up, it, it was just like being an athlete.
1: This is Bartiz
0: Strange, real name Bartice Cox. We spoke with him briefly in last week's episode. Bartisse has led a really interesting life. Today, he makes fantastic music. He has this beautiful singing voice. He grew up on Whitney, which were all three reasons that I wanted to talk to him for this season, but... Also, because Bartice did indeed play sports growing up, which will make sense in a minute. But he didn't play sports the way most of us played sports growing up, which, in my defense, I was a pretty good baseball player, (laughs) as long as he didn't ask me to hit the ball. that was never really my strong suit, per se. Suppose if you look back on it, you could say I wasn't a good baseball player, I was a good catcher. Probably, man, I was just a fine catcher, but I always got to play the position because no one wants to play catcher. <laughs> they don't want to deal with all that gear. Me, I liked it. like the costume of it. And I also loved, and this is true, to talk shit to all the batters as they stepped to the batter's box. <laughs> I was probably the only 11-year-old kid talking smack in a Little League game. But I digress. You see, Bartiz... Bartiz didn't need all those qualifiers because before Bartiz started making amazing music, Bartiz played sports. He grew up in rural Oklahoma. He played high school football, where high school football is a religion. He was good enough that he got a scholarship to Emporia State in Kansas, which is Division II college football. That's impressive in its own right. But his second year, he transferred to the University of Oklahoma. Now, OU isn't just... Division I college football, this is one of the historic powerhouses of D1 college football. This is the top of the top. Just to be scouted by Oklahoma means you are probably the best player for 100 miles around, and Bartice got asked to play for Oklahoma. Unfortunately, he blew his knee out before his first game, so technically he never played for Oklahoma, but even still, Bartice played sports. And for our purposes, this is all that matters here because bartice knows what it takes to be a high level athlete the kind of training it requires day in day out devotion hitting the weight room after practice practice in oklahoma heat two a days constant drills is work to compete at such a high level and you can never let it slip but bartice he can also sing and his mother is an opera singer so he also knows what it takes to maintain a voice at a high level too.
2: My mom, her background, she grew up singing in churches. She had a choir teacher in church that so was like, you gotta get out of here, you're good. And she was like, I don't know how, they recorded a demo tape, sent it to Eastman School of Music, and she got in on, on a scholarship and rode the Greyhound bus to Rochester, New York, first time ever leave, leaving Charlotte. Um, and you know, when she got there, she was the only black kid and worked hard and learned how to get through. But I mean, moving through her life, I remember at five in the morning, she was up singing. She would get up, warm her voice up, not even to sing that day, but just because she knew I have to work out. I got to work out every day if I'm going to be in shape. You know, it's just like, you know, you're playing football or you work out every day, even if you have a game on Friday or not, like you have to maintain a certain level of excellence at all times.
0: And this is the thing that people don't often appreciate about Great Voices. How much work it takes to get one and then how much work you got to do to maintain one i think we as listeners i think we all have a, a flawed understanding of great voices we watch whitney houston sing the national anthem which if you have never seen whitney houston sing the national anthem stop what you're doing just like stop the podcast go to your google machine type whitney houston national anthem in and just watch because it is the greatest version of that song. The Period. Marvin Gaye is a close second. But Whitney is a... It's an incredible. Just go watch that and then come back. Okay, you seen it? Okay. You, you see a vocal performance like that. I think that most of us just think... We think it's God-given. And we don't think of it the same way when we watch Jimi Hendrix play his version of the National Anthem. No one thinks that he just picked up a guitar and could play like that we think about the practice partly I think because we can see his fingers move we can see there's physical manipulation and technique there that we don't all have but when we watch a great singer open their mouth and hear that sound come out we just think I think we think it's all gift When Whitney opens her mouth and sings, we just see Jesus come out, you know? We don't think of all the work that it took to get there. We don't think of all the work that she's doing to do that, right, in that instance. Great singers aren't protective of their voices just because they're divas. They're protective of their voices because they work their asses off to get one and have to keep working their asses off every single day just to maintain one. Just like any world-class athlete. And wants to compete at a high level in their sport
2: yeah man i mean it really is a muscle and you know it gets stronger and you can lose it it can get weak so my mom she worked out every day she was always doing really boring ass drills just like it was football practice i mean she would put her finger on a note and match it perfectly you know walk up the scale you know I would have come downstairs every morning just hearing that. <laughs> um, but yeah.
0: Would every time, times would you be on your way to football practice, you know, walking out the door, and then your mom would be at the piano working out her voice?
2: Yeah. Um, I have actually, like, incredible photos of me leaving opera camp and going to, like, a football practice. I have all my, make- have all my makeup on. I've got, like, my, my <laughs> legs on, you know, like my cat. <laughs> yeah, I was a mess. <laughs> but my mom was, you know, she was really serious about it in the way that an athlete would be. And I would imagine that Whitney had a regimen. You know, my mom was like crazy about food, the types of things she would put in her body. Singers have rituals, <laughs> like great singers, you know, they've got their thing. And you should talk yeah. to my mom. <laughs> God, I would love to. <laughs> She's cold. Yeah, actually, I mean, if you want, I, I can easily put that Man, up. Man,
0: I would love to. That would be amazing. I've actually been looking for an opera singer or a gospel singer, someone with a power voice to talk to for this season. Oh, yeah. You should talk to my mom. So, ladies and gentlemen.
3: I would certainly say that I learned how to sing listening to my uncle in church.
0: I give you acclaimed soprano.
3: In a little town called Clover, South Carolina.
0: Who's performed everywhere from the Kennedy Center. To the Berlin Opera.
3: My uncle was what they called back then, and they still do call them, the hymn choir leader for Love's Chapel AME
0: Church. Published professor.
3: Small, beautiful, little quaint little church.
0: <laughs> World-class vocal coach.
3: So I would sit there, and at the time, I was not much of a talker. Bartisse's mom. I would just sit and listen and listen and listen, and then one day, I was four years old, and I just broke out and started singing.
0: Dr. Donna Mitchell Cox.
3: And my uncle came in and he said, is that you? Donna, <laughs> He's used to call me Donna Duck. Is that you, Donna Duck? That's when I knew that, well, I mean, I was just a baby. That's when they knew that I could sing. I
0: have to tell you, Dr. Cox was such a delight to talk to. Now, first of all, you can tell she's a singer just by listening to her speak. She speaks so musically. You know, this job has me listening to a lot of people talk and her voice that sounds like a harp. But beyond being a delightful person with a beautiful speaking voice and an excellent singing resume spanning from gospel to opera, she's also a professor of voice and a vocal coach. So she knows her stuff and she was the perfect person to explain what it takes to really sing.
3: Well, I'll just Speak totally from a, a teacher's perspective now, not only thinking about one vocalist, but just thinking about what I know that vocalists should do to protect their sound, protect their, the, everything that uh, makes up their instrument, knowing that their instrument, first of all, is the whole body and not just the mouth and the neck that they, you know that we hear this sound coming out of, right? Marilyn Horn, do you know who she is?
0: No, I don't. Who's
3: that? You don't? Okay. Marilyn Horn is a world renowned mezzo soprano. And I worked with her at the University of Oklahoma. She would come every semester and, and give our students lessons and give um, master classes um, as a clinician. So it was a wonderful learning experience. But one thing she, she said that I will never, ever forget, which I believe to be true. <laughs> Singing is half athleticism, half singing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you have to know your body. You have to know how your body works, how your body supports the voice. That's very important. Uh, People say, okay, you need to breathe. Right, but how do you connect that breath to the sound and also create the sound that you want? I don't think a lot of singers even think about that. I think, uh, especially people that are not trained singers, but it is important that a person know how to adjust their body, the strength that they have in their body to support their voice. A person has to learn how to tune not only the instrument, the, the vocal instrument, but they have to tune their whole, whole body compliment their
0: voices so i can sing i sing for a living and i think it's fair to say that i'm a better singer than most people a lot of which is only to do with the fact that i've just done it so much for so many years but there's a difference between when i say i can sing and what dr cox is talking about tuning her entire body to sing yes technically Both Dr. Cox and I are singers. Just like technically, both Bartice and I played sports growing up. But there is a vast difference between me strapping on my catcher's gear and playing dress up on a baseball diamond and what Bartice had to do to even catch the eye of the University of Oklahoma football program. This is very important to establish. Because I think we take a singer like Whitney Houston for granted. We admire her voice, we worship the vocal cords but we don't appreciate the athleticism that is behind it all. We fail to recognize that a great voice like that doesn't just come out of the throat, just like a great quarterback doesn't just throw a perfect spiral from his hand. It comes from the whole body, being finely tuned, worked out over years and years of practice and training, a million micro-adjustments happening all at once, and that kind of performance that kind of athleticism, sure. There is some natural gift that is involved, but that natural gift is nothing without practice, starting at a very young age and continuing throughout your entire life, which is what Bartisse got growing up playing football in Oklahoma, and what Bartista's mother, Dr. Cox, got growing up singing gospel in Love's Chapel back in Clover, South Carolina, and what Whitney got growing up surrounded by great voices in her family and in her church. New Hope Baptist Church in Newark, New Jersey.
3: Her roots in the African American church. We're very, very expressive people in church. We we give it all that we we give it all we got, you know. <laughs> and so, yes, I would say that that definitely impacted the way she she presented her voice, how she handled her voice. I must say that it is definitely a taxing um, way of singing, but I, I would stand with you and be in total agreement with you that her upbringing, understanding how the, the Spirit of God is moving in the church and being connected to God because she had a prayer life and because she knew God for herself. She had a mother that was a singer. She, she had been exposed to excellent singing, Dion Warwick. She, she knew what it was like to sing well and what it took and how to physically use her whole body to accompany and to, to um, project her sound. It had a whole lot to do with her being in church and being exposed to singers that did it every single Sunday.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I tried Whitney Runs. And so like, if I thought that there was anything in my power, anything that I could do to sing like that, I would have tried it.
0: This is Dessa. She's a singer, a rapper, a writer, a lifelong Whitney fan. And one of my favorite people on the planet to talk to because she is astoundingly smart. And she says things like this.
1: And I used to imagine when I was a teenager, so old enough to have my instrument now, right? Like the hormones that happened, the gel was set. I remember thinking, what if for one day I could sing the music in my head like they can? What would that be? What would that even be like? It's like, I wouldn't want to inhale to waste any time. I'd only want to sing.
0: See what I'm talking about? One of the best people to chop it up with over a glass of whiskey and the ideal podcast guest. Dessa is modest about her voice, but Dessa can sing. On the spectrum between your uncle flatly stumbling through happy birthday and Whitney Houston, I think I'm probably somewhere squarely in the middle. Dessa's definitely closer to the Whitney end of things than she is to my neighborhood on the spectrum. But even still, she recognizes there is a Grand Canyon between Whitney and the rest of us.
1: What I, what I have done isn't even a second cousin. Do you know what I'm saying to that? Yes, I tried Whitney runs, but it was very clear that my voice, it wasn't following the directions that I was giving it. Because when I say a run, first of all, I mean, I don't know if everybody uses that word. If you were to take a classical music singing course or something, the word that they use would be melisma. And it's when you move notes very quickly up, up, up or down, so it's the kind of thing that pop singers do a lot. But the way that Whitney could do runs, the kind of precision that that takes, particularly when you're singing hard, and by that I mean like you're pushing a lot of air through, the, through your instrument, you know, it's really engaged. You can kind of think about skating really fast, you know, and then really quickly maneuvering to very gently push off in the other direction while also like doing your taxes, like the, 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 she could start essentially cross-legged and go straight to a karate kid high kick. <laughs> the degree of like nimbleness of her instrument, how quickly she could change direction as if she, she just really wasn't honoring the physics that seemed to be, that seemed to, to reign over the way that my vocal cords and my lungs and my diaphragm works. I don't know. It's like watching the Olympics. Yes, their bodies, they have two legs and I have two legs. <laughs> um, but but they're in the similarities. end. you know, as I watch like 16 year old gymnasts move with no assistance th- through the air in a way that I could never compel my body to behave.
0: Someone like Frank Sinatra gets so much credit for his phrasing, the way he chooses to sing the songs that he sings. And these are all songs that people have sung hundreds of times, they're standards, and many people who are better singers technically than Sinatra have sung them, and still Sinatras are worshipped because of his phrasing, because of his delivery and because of the emotion that is attached to the choices that he makes. And that is why people worship Sinatra not just as a singer, but as a musician. No one will deny Whitney's uh, technique and her ability as a singer. But do you think that she maybe is underrated or perhaps underappreciated for her musicianship as a vocalist?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Just In some ways, your point before about people just think that voices are ready-made... I might be a little bit guilty of of thinking about just that the, the instrument. I do think there's a you're born with element, but you're right, you don't want to like undermine the the whole life dedicated towards learning how to play that instrument, right? I don't know for sure how Whitney's songs got got made and how much like production guidance she might have might have had on some of the phrasing, but but on the way that she stylizes, yes, I think she is undercredited in that in addition to the fancy trills, which I feel like everybody everybody knows about that. Everybody jokes about that. You know, when you push air out of your lungs and you sing on it, <laughs> as opposed to just breathing it out or talking on it, you can set the dial on how much of the air you sing on. You can sing on all of it, or you can sing on all of it. You know, you, you can make it breathy or not breathy. She's really good at picking her moments about when to maneuver between those two modes. She's also really good at picking moments to alternate between her head voice and her chest voice. Okay, to cut in
0: really quick and explain head voice and chest voice for those that don't know. When you sing, the sound and quality of your voice is not just shaped by the air passing through the muscles of your vocal cords. Our bodies are their own set of effects processors in a way. And you can choose what effects you'll use based on how you let the sound of your voice resonate as it leaves your body. You can let it resonate in your chest, uh, or you can let it resonate in your head. uh. You see how different they sound? How a singer uses their resonators, when they choose to use them, and how they switch between them is crucial to how their voice sounds. Really, it's how... They play their instrument.
1: She maneuvers really well between those two. And in a woman's voice, you can't do all the notes in a chest or head. You can't pick. There's an overlap between your chest voice and your head voice. So, as you go up, there's this section called the passaggio, I think, where there's this few notes that you can sing either in chest or head. And you have to pick as you go. So every singer, when they're singing a hard song... (laughs) we we'll go, here comes that damn passage. And I got to choose right now which which way to tackle that note in. Because else you got, ah. you know, like that's your musical output. So she chooses her moments about when to flip between chest and head to really good, really high effect, I think. Also, Andy, will you please not use any of my attempted demonstration because I sound hella wobbly. But
0: <laughs> Sorry, Nessa. I use a couple of them. Because the point she's making was so good. When we watch Whitney sing, we don't think about the millions of micro decisions she's making both consciously and subconsciously. And when she makes the decision, how incredibly hard it is to execute it. Listen to this part of the song, Saving All My Love For You. I I love this. What she does here totally blows my mind because you can hear her building up to this full body, super loud belt, as she rises on the phrase, 'cause I'd rather be home feeling,' and then just before she finishes the sentence, she turns on a dime back down to this perfectly pure, delicate, soft tone to deliver the end of that sentence in the word blue. Cause I'd
1: rather-
0: This is like taking a motorcycle into a turn, full speed at 200 miles an hour, and then breaking down to five miles per hour to make the turn. And then, instantly bringing the bike back up to 200 miles an hour as she exits the turn, and hits that, so I'm saving all my love for, only to drop it back down again to make the last word of the line, you, this perfect, euphonious, flawless, delicate tone to carry out the phrase. You know, it's not just singing. It is work. She is working her ass off. She is playing the hell out of her instrument. It's when she takes a breath. Because if she takes it at the wrong time, it can totally mess up how much she has left to finish the phrase she's on or how much breath she takes. Because if it's too much or too little, it will change how she supports the next note. And then how that breath will pass through her vocal cords and what shape those vocal cords will be in and where it will resonate in her body. And a note. There aren't just two resonators, head and chest. There's actually seven different resonators to choose from. And switching between them quickly can be as difficult as lifting a heavy weight, like for real. Trust me, I'm, I'm trying to get better with my falsetto singing. I've got this very naturally deep voice singing low notes is very easy. I'm trying to figure out how to sing high notes. It's very hard for me because it requires a lot of delicate switching between the various different resonators in the head and the throat and the sinuses. And trying to work through a difficult part, doing all that switching after 20 minutes, I'm literally exhausted. It wears you out. And at that point we haven't even gotten to actually hitting the right note or how your mouth is shaped, or if you're wearing a ball gown and heels all while doing this,
1: you know, singing is such a bodily task. Right. And I think it, I do think that it, it does kind of occupy like a vaulted position in the kingdom of music because naked in an empty room, you can do it. You know, it feels so elemental and that's how people have been doing it since there were people. And it might be easy to underestimate in the singing of a song, any song, how many decisions there are, even after all the notes are written down and all the phrasing has been decided, you know, like there are so many ways to sing the same note. So many ways. And you are actively deciding every time you start one until your singing career is over. She's making huge decisions Every time. What Dessa said
0: earlier about phrasing is true. We don't know a lot about who made these phrasing choices on this album. How much she did on her own and how much was guided by a producer or a songwriter. But we do know the story of that National Anthem performance that I talked about earlier. Which, if you still haven't listened to that, stop the podcast and go watch the performance. You have to. It's important because she didn't practice that performance she listened to a demo of the arrangement once and it's not a traditional arrangement of the song they switched it from a waltz to a 4-4 four, four groove to make it feel more modern so it's not like she's just singing a song that we've all sung a thousand times she's singing a totally different version of it and she heard it once and then she went out there and sang the greatest performance of it ever of all time and so if we know that It's pretty safe to say that even if she had some guidance on how to perform these songs, how to phrase these deliveries, in the end, the reason they are the artistic and athletic achievement that they are is because of Whitney and the way she played her instrument. So we can talk about resonators and breath control and Whitney's gospel roots till the cows come home. But even when you add all that up, it still doesn't equal the impact of her voice, right? Because there's lots of great gospel voices who can check all of those data points, but they they aren't Whitney. And this is a thing we run into a lot with brilliant artists and performers. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so I asked pretty much everyone I interviewed, what is it about her voice and her vocal performance that makes her so special? Because we can break down all the data, but in the end, there was something else that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And easily, my favorite answer was from CNN political and culture writer Brandon Tensley.
4: First and foremost, I think it's the, it's the range, right? She can just cover a wide range of notes. She has the sort of melisma, the vocal runs, and those are the sorts of vocal skills that you hear in artists from Adele, that you hear, you know, Beyonce or Ariana Grande. It's something that the artist will still tap into. And I think there was just a sort of Resonance to her voice itself, when you think about how it reflects the profundity of the lyrics I think that's that 's a very hard thing to match you know she if you 're singing about desire about love you know it's it's not a quiet emotion. <laughs> it's something that really, that shakes you. That some, it's something that rattles you. And Whitney Houston, in a very sort of literal way, was able to match the loudness of those emotions with her voice. Oh, I
0: love that.
4: It's so true.
0: Love isn't a quiet emotion. And when you hear her, Whitney Houston, belting how will I know if he really loves me, You don't feel that lyric because it's some brilliant piece of poetry. It is a simple phrase. The words themselves are desperate, but it doesn't hit you with that sense of desperation because of the words, it hits you because of the emotion and the power that she puts into the performance. It is loud. She is loud, just like that kind of desperate, raw emotion
4: that you get When you're in love, and I think that's another reason why she was the sort of artist. You know, you'd put on one of her songs, and it's the sort of thing you would belt out in your apartment room alone. It's the sort of thing you want to belt out, you know, at a club with friends. It's the sort of thing that you want to dance to at a I don't know a wedding reception or something. But it is it is raw emotion, and I think it's the sort of raw emotion that's reflected uh, with just the sheer power of her voice. It's a very athletic. Voice in a way that you still don't see a lot of artists do today, um, or you know, have that sort of raw talent. And if you hear Clive Davis talk about discovering Whitney, you know, at this club in the early '80s, and that's when she was singing a cover, I believe, of Greatest Love of All, and he heard it, and he was just like, "Oh my God! Like, this is the voice." I need to sign this person. This is the sort of thing, this is the sort of instrument uh, that pop music has been missing. And, you know, it, maybe it sounds a little saccharine, but I think those are the sorts of, it's a sort of visceral reaction uh, that people have to Whitney's voice because it is, it's it's vulnerable, but it's also powerful. And you know, I think that's just such a hard combination to, to really come by in mainstream pop music.
0: And that emotion that raw expression that Brendan Tensley is talking about, that visceral performance that she gives that makes millions of people want to just sing into their hairbrush in the mirror gets back to something that Dr. Cox said at the start of the episode about gospel music and Whitney's roots in the African-American church. She said, and I quote, we're very, very expressive people in church. We give it our all. And that is exactly what you hear Whitney doing on this debut record that set her apart from every other voice that appeared in pop music before her. She took all that gospel, all that training, all that athleticism, and channeled it right into pop music in a way that no one had ever done before.
3: I'm just very happy that she showed the world how versatile she was and how versatile gospel was.
0: We're back here with opera and gospel singer Dr. Donna
3: Mitchell-Cox. She took genres and included genres into pop music and she recreated something that was maybe one way she made it. She put another dimension to it in the way she sang.
0: Did that mean a lot to you? Was it significant for you as a woman who grew up singing gospel in the African-American church to hear a, another gospel voice like that on the biggest platform in America, you know, like on a pop level?
3: Hmm. Yeah, I I would say that, um, you know, I grew up in the time where we were taught to do the best that we could, um, work hard, whatever your craft is, reshape it, create something new, make sure that you're doing everything that you can to be successful, not to be seen, not to be heard, but so that African American people could go to another level. So when Whitney came out and she started singing and like I said, meshing gospel music and R and B and pop music and all the sounds, making her voice heard, it was also like it was all of our voices, it was all of our singers' voices. A lot of us grew up in church. A lot of us was that versatile you know some of us like me went off to a classical side but always came back to the root i never ever stopped singing in church you know never ever stopped giving concerts so yes she was a voice for the african american woman sound that reached the levels and the, the notoriety that our sound deserved
0: And that is actually part of what we're going to cover next week in the final episode of this season of the Opus. We're going to dig into the impact that Whitney's had beyond music on so many cultures and so many communities, how she meant different things to different groups of people and ultimately what she's meant to the world and tragically what a toll that all took on her as a person. But for now, I want to thank this week's guests. CNN political and cultural writer Brendan Tensley, singer, rapper, poet, my friend, Dessa. Check out her music. Check out her book, My Own Devices. It's great. Just check for her. She's always working on something cool. She's worth a follow. I also want to thank my homie Subyao for Let Me Use This Song Solution at the beginning of the show. He's got a great new album that's up for pre-sale right now. I do a tiny bit of singing on, so if you want to hear my gravelly voice over some beautiful electronic music, look up Subyao, S-U-B-P-Y-A-O. Last but not least, I want to thank Barty Strange for his great music, his great insights, for introducing me to his mom, the incredible Dr. Donna Mitchell Cox. Honestly, I could have just aired our interview in full. It's a masterclass. There's so much great material that I haven't even used yet. I can't wait for the bonus episode. Over at Consequence of Sound, they're giving away a beautiful Vinyl Me Please reissue of the album, Whitney Houston. Skate fold, peaches and cream colored vinyl, and it comes with a 40-page hardcover book. It's a real beaut. So head on over to consequencesound.net, enter for your chance to win. And if you're at this point in the episode and you still haven't watched Whitney sing the national anthem, you are killing me, bruh. Do it right away. It'll blow your mind and then remind yourself that she didn't practice that. She just ripped that one right off the hip. It's incredible. She's she's a machine. But it's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening, y'all. For consequence of sound, Sony Legacy Recordings, I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and this
1: is the Opus.
2: There is no Tenacious
4: D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts.